0: Let's turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're starting a new chapter in Mark. There's going to be a lot of verses flying around here today. So just stay on your toes. We're going to have them up here. The new screen does not leave any scripture to the imagination. If you can't read this, you need more than glasses. So um, so we're going to read the first eight verses. And I want to warn you in advance that we are stopping before the subject ends. Uh, we're only going to go through our text today. It's just going to be the first eight verses. But I want to let you know that this Sunday and next Sunday will be... Um, uh, Twin sermons that will go together on the same subject. So we're just going to do the first eight verses, though. So let's read that and pray and and get into it. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement, and we thank you for the admonition. We thank you, Lord, for the rebukes, Lord, I pray this morning that we would not sit in the seat of the scornful and point our fingers and shake our heads at the Pharisees. But Lord, I pray that we would, with open hearts, receive what you may be saying to us. And Lord, I pray that we would also hear with the ears of grace, Lord, that you are not condemning, but every time the sword of the Spirit is used in a way that Brings pain, it's also bringing healing. I pray that this morning would be that if we find ourselves in the position of Pharisees. Lord, I ask that you would help me communicate clearly and well, and that we would all be given ears to hear by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Why did I pray such a prayer? Because the text is saying some things. That are a little on the difficult end of the spectrum. Well, really, Jesus is saying something that we tend to write off as somebody else's problem. <laughs> well, I'm not like that, and uh, and that's what we do. That's what we like to do. That's who. That's what we do. This morning, though, what we want is to hear maybe if we are guilty of the very thing that Jesus. Just we ended on. So I want to go through this text. I want to go through the situation that, that they, were, they were in, and then I, I want us to do some application um, and some helpful avoidance uh, from falling into the trap of the Pharisees. So the very first thing is in the very first two verses, just so you know, remember we've talked about that this is not necessarily in chronological order. Right, So Mark kind of bounces all over the place in the narrative. What he's trying to do is he's trying to illustrate what, what he, as Peter is talking to him and giving him this gospel, he's trying to give what are the most relevant portions of the gospel story that, that he can. John, at the end of his gospel, says, if we wrote everything down, there's not enough books in the world to contain everything that Jesus did. So we're trying to hit, and Mark in particular, are the highlights of, uh, of what happened in the ministry of Jesus. And really, up until chapter 7, most of what we're encountering from Jesus is casting out demons, healing people, walking on water, doing miracles. It's this action, action. And then there's reaction, but it's primarily this action from Jesus and sending out the disciples and doing all the things that he's been doing. Chapter 7 gets us into the first extended teaching of Jesus that you find in the book of Mark. So Mark's different than the other Gospels in that regard. But keep in mind, too, who the audience is. Remember when we started the Mark series that we think it's very probable that this letter of of this Gospel account was delivered to Roman Christians, therefore probably a mixture of Jew and primarily Gentile church, that were persecuted under Roman rule. And so this letter and this this gospel account is meant for them to hear uh, what Mark uh, felt led by the Holy Spirit was the most important thing uh, for them to get. So just all that in mind, we jump in and we got Pharisees showing up and uh, some of the scribes, the teachers of the law, in verses 1 and 2, and they see some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. Now, for all the moms, and this I think of my wife most clearly when I see something like this, my wife is probably saying, well, they should be washing their hands. Right? They should be washing their filthy, grubby, grimy, gross hands. So I know, but that is not what this means. This is not a description of dirty hands. The word is defiled. The word is unclean. It is not a reference to dirty hands, as in you were in the garden and you should probably wash before you eat the sandwich. Um, The reference is into unclean, clean, ceremonially unclean hands. Um, Jesus has already encountered some pushback uh, in the book of Mark with this kind of uh, frustration from the Pharisees. In chapter 2, he was eating with sinners. Also in chapter 2, his disciples weren't fasting. Remember we talked about that? Why do uh, our disciples fast and your disciples don't fast? Remember that? Uh, Because they had a tradition that had arisen. And they weren't following the tradition. Another thing was Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? Healing on the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? Allowing your disciples to pick grains of wheat on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm over the Sabbath. So Jesus has encountered some of the friction already, and this is another example of the tradition of the Pharisees that has risen above tradition and now is firmly behind the pulpit as the very Word of God. That is what's happening. And Mark wants to explain it. Look Look, your Bible may put uh, verse 3 in parentheses. Is that what your Bible does? It puts it in parentheses. So when you go to verse 3, oh, there's the parentheses. Uh, so Mark is parenthetically, he is telling us, because the audience is primarily Gentile, more than likely, he's letting them know, this is why this is a big deal. Here's, what, here's what's going on. And then he describes, they don't eat unless they wash their hands properly. I was reading and studying what that really meant. The amount of water they used for the ceremonial washing was not like what my wife wants you to wash your hands. Uh, they, they, they would literally dip their hand in in a, a cupping fashion, open up their fingers and let it slide down out. and then that was the washing. The washing had nothing to do with dirt. There was this in self-importance. Ah, now I'm clean. Why aren't your disciples doing that, Jesus? Other than the fact that it makes you look like a weirdo. Because they had a tradition that said they must do this. Now, where where in the world did this tradition come from? Before I get there, look look at all the stuff Mark says. Um, I like to think that this may have a little sarcasm in it, because he says that, Uh, holding to the the end of verse 3, he says they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Notice it doesn't say holding to the commandment of God. It doesn't say that. It says the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, because there's Gentiles there, ooh, icky, yuck, they have to be uh, washed, like take a bath. The word is baptismo. It's the same word that we use for baptism. They, you have to be washed coming in from the marketplace. And there's many other, here's the sarcasm, in my opinion. And there are many other traditions that they observe. There's all kinds of stuff these guys want you to do in regard to washing cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. There's all these traditions around the proper washing and cleansing ceremonies to make you clean when you partake in food, here's here's what had happened. Um, let's can you throw up Exodus thirty nineteen. I just want you to see where the root in scripture is, or we can go to Exodus thirty nine. There it is. There is a provision in Exodus thirty nineteen that says, and this is in the context of going into the tabernacle when they had the basin, and this is the verse with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet before they go in to the tabernacle. It was a priestly requirement to be ceremonially clean. I can never say that word. Uh, To be clean um, in a ceremonious way uh, in the Jewish law. This is where they got it. From this verse springs all kinds of traditions. Because, like any religious community, what they're trying to do is give practical advice on how to follow Scripture. And somewhere along the line, the, the uh, illustrations or the practical advice turns into uh, something more than this is the way we think it's best to do it. It turns into, you must do this thing. There's the verse. It was only for the priesthood. It filters down into the laity, the regular folks, as if you really want to be godly and follow godliness, you've got to do these things. And then it became more and more and more and more pomp and circumstance around these traditions. And by the time, the first century, the time of Christ, the traditions had morphed into... This is the only way for you to be godly. And so now, you're a disciple of Jesus with the living king of the universe, the Messiah, and the Pharisees are frustrated that you are not cleaning your hands correctly. I don't know if you can... See where this sermon may be going. Obviously you can. Because all of us are beholden to traditions that we associate with truth. We just, we all do. And some people are more married to those traditions than others. So, so Mark is, Mark is telling us um, that the Pharisees had a lot of rules to explain verses like this, and they stacked up more and more requirements on top of the simplicity. This is for the priesthood. There was a purpose. There is a foundation. There is a reason, but traditions got built and built, and grew, and it went from being some kind of regulatory thing that might be a good idea for uh, the Jewish laity to do, and it turns into, you all must live this way. So look at verse 5. Verse 5 really picks up after the parentheses. So verse 5 really goes with verse 2, and verse 5 says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You Notice that the emphasis is not, here's the chapter and verse from the law of Moses, but instead, there is a tradition of the elders and you're in violation of it. Why are you doing that? Jesus' response gives us everything we need to know about how God views our attempts to add to the Word of God. Jesus says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Now, when you go and read Isaiah 29, which is where this is from, um, to to realize how Jesus interprets and uses the Old Testament. That's an important important thing just to put in the back of your mind. When you read Old Testament quotations, you are getting an example of how Jesus or the apostles interpreted the Old Testament and applied it to the world that they were living in. Jesus takes this uh, prophetic pronouncement against Israel and they're not following after God, and he says this applies to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, and then, one of the, to me, one of the scariest things in the Word of God is Jesus saying, this people honors me with their lips. Let me rephrase that. This people sings blessed assurance. This people has Bible verses on t-shirts. This people quotes all the right things. This people watches all the right shows. This people does all the stuff that Christians do. Their heart is far from me. It is scary. It is a scary verse. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's also it's dangerous for me to preach on this because my own biases, my own feelings can come in here and I can start giving you what I think the doctrines of men are versus what the commandments of God are. So I want to I be very clear that everything that I say in any sermon has to be validated through Scripture. And that's true of every preacher. That's true of every sermon. But what I can say is that the danger that's, that's listed here is a danger we should all be aware of. The ability of the human sinful heart, which we're going to get to next week in detail. This unique ability we have to be able to mouth words and go through motions with the outward but our hearts are a million miles away it is scary. It just is. Here it's easy to spot because we know that the Jews had an oral tradition. They wrote this, a lot of this oral tradition down. It's called the Mishnah. It is, a, it is just like we have commentaries and sermons and podcasts today. They had a tradition that attempted to explain how the law worked in the world that they lived in and the culture they were in. That's what the Mishnah is. And there was rabbinic uh, debate back and forth over how to apply it best. There were different schools of thought. You run into that all throughout the New Testament. That's why you have Sadducees who did not believe in the supernatural. And you had the Pharisees who did. Uh, You had radical groups called the Essenes that are out in the wilderness. That's probably who John the Baptist was hooked up with. You've got all these different groups and opinions and viewpoints and flavors just like we do today. And Jesus said, the danger here of hypocrisy in your life is that you have elevated a tradition of men and you are teaching it as if it is a doctrine of God. And it's like, okay, well, where might I be doing that? Look at verse 8, because verse 8 is really the verse that we're going to spend the most time on for the next 15 minutes or so. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus is actually rebuking the Pharisees for not keeping commandments, Jesus is not here saying that all traditions are bad. Jesus is not saying that all practices of the Pharisees were wrong. What he's saying is, is that you are elevating these traditions over the commandment of God. You have left the commandment of God in favor of these traditions of men. It's a subtle form of idolatry. Everybody knows what idolatry is, right? When I was a kid, my pastor would say, idolatry, I always thought adultery. That's not, adultery is, uh, everybody knows what adultery is. Uh, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Idolatry is taking anything in and, and place of God, the true God, Putting that idol, that thing as the centerpiece of your life. And that is where your worship goes. Now, I have a feeling that nobody here has a gold statue hidden in your basement that you go to in the morning and bow down and burn incense to. And if you do, please come see me after service and we can talk. But I doubt that any of you are struggling with that. Pastor Steve, I'm I'm struggling with this sin. I've got this statue. uh, I've got a golden calf. It's It's in the basement, and I'm worshiping it. And I'm really struggling with this sin. I have never, as of today, 21 years in pastoral ministry, I have never, ever had anybody say that to me. Because that is not what we are going to struggle with in idolatry. But there's lots of other things you could be struggling with that are in the place of God that you have placed in the center of your life. And some of those things may be good things. Let me give you some examples that are uncomfortable. Okay, Just a warning in advance. Your family could be an idol in front of God. Now, I'm supposed to be a dad that raises his children. I'm supposed to be a husband that loves his wife. I'm supposed to be all those things. So are you saying families are bad? No. I'm saying that it's easy to put family in front of God in a, in a way that, that God is secondary to the family. I'll give you another one that's uncomfortable. For me, ministry can be a thing that gets placed in a position above God. And if you're not in a full-time ministry type, it's hard to wrap your head around that. But it's really way more true than you think it is. Because I can go through the motions of preaching true things and go straight to hell. That's super exciting for the pastor. But it's true. True. I can, I can be somebody in ministry that loves the affirmation I get after a sermon that touches your heart, and I thrive and live for that moment, or uh, somebody in worship hearing the compliments of, of their skill, or that I'm talking to people, or I'm oh, Steve, it's so nice that you helped us out, or whatever, and you can get that that is where you're getting your strength and support and your sustenance emotionally, and and, and really, God is secondary to that idol of ministry. Now, some of you are like, okay, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's fine. But, but it's, a, it's a thing. Idolatry can show up in a, in a lot of different ways. Some of them are more obvious than others. Pastor Steve, I, I spent uh, 73 hours uh, last week playing video games. Okay, that's probably a problem. 73 hours is a lot. Here, here's one. Work. Can work be an idol? Uh, I put all my thoughts and hopes and dreams and efforts and it's my career. Is that an idol? It's a dangerous one. It's always been a dangerous one. There's a lot of things that aren't in themselves bad, but they can become idols. And Jesus is telling us that these traditions of men have actually replaced the commandment of God. That is a form of idolatry. Something has replaced God in these Pharisees' lives. And for them, it was being recognized as keepers, strict keepers of the law. Does anybody know any super strict Christians? Anybody? Anybody? Well, come on, we live in West Virginia. You all know some super strict Christians. Fundamentalist mindsets. And here's how you begin to recognize them. I haven't been to a movie in 35 years. Because I'm holier than how... And here's how I'll judge it. How many years has it been for you? Oh, last week. Okay, well, I'm at least 35 years more holy than you. Now, that's maybe a radical example. But there are people... And some of them are sitting in this room, and some of them may be preaching from behind this pulpit, that struggle with making comparisons with other Christians in all the horrible, no good, terrible, bad things you're doing that I consider to be the most important things that a Christian can possibly do. And we make idols out of things that are probably, they've got a root, like, like, The washing of hands has a root in Scripture that morphs into this thing that is uncontrollable, this gigantic list of commands. Let me give you a couple things about Jesus in Scripture, but let me just emphasize this again. Jesus is not... Condemning tradition on its face. He's condemning the replacing of God's word with tradition. But Jesus is also not doing something else because there's another side to this coin or there's an implication that Jesus is really just a flower child hippie. Jesus is just, you know, anything goes, all this stuff, all these doctrines. Oh no. Doctrines are awful. It's all just free in God's grace. It's just, there's no, there's no reason to worry about don't commit adultery. It's it's all everything's fine. Everything's good. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is not what is. That is not what this is. What verse 8 says is, you leave the commandment of God. So what does he mean when he says that? He means the commandment of God should not be left. You should stay with the commandments of God and get rid of the traditions of man. That's what he saying. Let, let's emphasize this with some scriptures, uh, or Jesus' view of scripture. Matthew five seventeen. Let's let's all go to Matthew chapter five. Famous verse. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus' view of the scripture is that they must be fulfilled. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus then views Scripture as something that needs fulfilled and something that will not pass away. If you keep reading, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. No relaxing of the commandments is what Jesus said. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus said, Scripture needs fulfilled, Scripture is not passing away, and he praises those who do it. Do not relax it. John 10 35, you don't have to turn there. It says that the scripture, Jesus says this, the scripture cannot be broken. And in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. What am I getting at? Jesus is all about commandments, obedience, and scripture. Jesus is all about doctrine, and right teaching. Jesus is all about rules and keeping them. Jesus is against you adding your two cents to his rules. That is what he's against. That is why the Pharisees are called hypocrites, because they're adding to the rules that Jesus gave. And what really happens is, what we're really saying is, the way that I have determined that we should interpret or the way that we should be holy is better than what God has given us. That is what the Pharisees are actually saying and why Jesus was not happy. Because what you find out is, when you create certain rules, they're actually easier to keep than the rules that Jesus gives. That is actually the point. Let me give you an example. There's a certain tradition that says women should never wear makeup. Never. Because the Bible does say not that a woman should not make the braiding of her hair and the wearing of costly jewelry. That should not be the focus of a woman should be the outside. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Now, that is actually good advice for every woman in here to look at what God is actually saying. He's saying, quit making Instagram the God centerpiece of your life that tells you how you should look and think and feel and act. That is what that scripture is saying. We are addicted to appearance. We need that verse. Why, why are there so many women struggling with self-image? Because the world demands that you do. I have a I live with a bunch of girls, so this is, this is something I'm familiar with. The world demands that you look a certain way, you be a certain size, all the nonsense. You should not be ingesting that as your diet all the time. Okay. The Bible does say, make the inward person of the heart the focus. So it does say this but to then say, here's how we'll keep that rule. No makeup, no jewelry. Look like an Amish person. So let's ask ourselves what that does. Is it easier to say, don't wear lipstick? Or is it easier to say, love your neighbor as yourself? Which one's easier? It's a whole lot easier just to give up lipstick. Truthfully, it's a whole lot easier to wear uh, really long dresses, and it's a whole lot easier for men to throw away all their jewelry. So I'm giving you kind of an extreme example, but it is a lot easier to follow those type of commandments than it is to quit being prideful, to quit thinking of yourself more highly than you should. Which one is easier? Well, it's definitely easier to give up lipstick and jewelry. It just is. The tradition of man, though it's obnoxious and difficult in one sense, is not life-giving. It doesn't bring hope. It doesn't do anything but give you a bondage on one hand and pride on the other because ain't nobody else doing it like you. And so now you're in bondage and prideful and you've got two sets of sins rather than just the regular sets. Religious sin is so deceptive because you think you're right. That's why it's so difficult. So it's way easier to just not wear lipstick. It's way easier just to give up on certain things and say, I am truly living for the Lord. When in reality, you may be worshiping him with your mouth and your heart be over here. That's the danger of departing from the commandments of God. What I'm actually saying to you is that the commandments of God are harder to keep than the commandments of men, even though the commandments of the Pharisees were so burdensome, Jesus said, when you find a convert, you make them twice the son of hell as yourself. And that's the way legalism always works. The legalistic ideas of man are burdensome and they're bondage and they give you pride when you do them right. And I, I, I will freely confess to you, I grew up in a system that said, no secular music, no, no, uh, ever. You can't listen to secular music. You'll let the demons in if you do. Uh, I, I lis- and, but I also want to say there's some secular music that I'm not going to let my kids listen to. Why? Because it's preaching garbage. Can we learn to make the distinction rather than making a rule that says, never will you listen to that again? Can everybody make the distinction? If a song's filled with sex and drugs, and, and gross rebellion, that, that's probably not what the kids should be listening to, regardless if it's country or rap, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what the genre is. It's the words are what matter. All of us probably grew up with certain levels of legalism. The cure to legalism is commandments. The cure for legalism, the commandments of God. That's the cure for our legalism. Because Jesus Christ, according to, in fact, everybody just turn there. Galatians chapter 5. Preacher's getting excited. But this really touches our daily life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Who's the audience in Galatians? A bunch of Christians who are Gentiles who are being attacked by Pharisaical Christians from the Jewish community demanding that they get circumcised. And he says, freedom is why Christ has set you free. Be firm in that freedom. Skip over to verse 13. For you are called the freedom, brothers. You're free in Christ. you're free to eat and to drink and to be merry as long as you're following the commandments of God, drinking to drunkenness is no. Eating and to gluttony is no. But eating and drinking and being filled with life and enjoying the blessings of God, Yes, to the glory of God. Yes, eating and drinking to the Lord and giving Him praise for all that we do. Yes, raising our children to the glory of God. Yes, doing nothing and getting rid of church and everything I do with family. I've got too many things going on with the family. We don't have time for God or church. No, providing for your family at work. Yes, yes doing nothing but think about work and being consumed by it and your family doesn't see you and God doesn't see you and nobody sees you because you are getting ahead at work? No! The freedom that we have in Christ is to live in this world with Jesus as the center, worshiping Him, following His commandments, and in that is freedom. But when you and I start adding rules and lists and other things, we're no longer free. We're in bondage and with the added sinful benefit of being prideful about the fact that we're doing it better than other people. That is not the way that it's supposed to work. For you are called the Freedom Brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You are free, because of Jesus, to serve and be a blessing and to minister. That is what we are supposed to be freed up to do. Traditions can be wholesome. They can be healthy. They can promote godliness. Let me give you an example. Devotional reading and prayer at a certain time. Some of you are more disciplined than others. Discipline is required to be godly in Christ Jesus. Reading your Bible and praying every day is really good. But if we establish a tradition that says if you don't do it in the morning before you eat breakfast, you're in sin. And there are people who do that kind of thing. No, the important thing is that you read your Bible and you pray. Not that you do it before breakfast or not that you do it at a certain time at night. Like, no, the important thing is that you do it. Family devotions can be the same way. Here's another tradition. Three songs, announcements, a sermon, dismiss the kids, prayer. Oh, that would be what we do every Sunday morning. Is there anything in the Bible that says that's the way church has to be? No. They didn't even have announcements when Peter was in charge. Well, maybe they did. The way that we do church is not the way that they did church 200 years ago. I believe that, you got, listen, when I was in Africa, we don't even remotely do church the same. In Uganda, this is how they do church. They start sort of at a time, and they only started on time because Americans were there, I promise you. They just start when they start, and it just goes all like day. And this is the way a church service in Uganda was like. There were like 14 people, it seemed like, that had drums, and they were just pounding on the drums, and we were all sitting around, and some people were up, and some people were down, and they were singing and clapping and dancing and shouting and singing and clapping and dancing and shouting and singing and clapping and dancing and shouting, and 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 dancing and shouting. stop, let's take up an offering and then they preached for about 20 minutes on an offering, and then they were singing and clapping and dancing and shouting and singing and clapping and dancing and shouting, and kids were everywhere dancing. There were people leaving. There were people coming in. It was nothing like church here. And then somebody gave a sermon, and it was like two hours long, and then they were singing and dancing and clapping and shouting and singing, and that's the way their church service was. Is that wrong? Nope. Would it work here? Nope. We can admire it. When, you, when I was there, I'm telling you, I was weeping because they weren't singing and dancing and clapping and shouting out of some kind of need to prove that they had a cool rhythm section in their church. They were singing and dancing and clapping and shouting because there were babies dying in their villages and they need Jesus. That's why they were singing and dancing and clapping and shouting. Some of them were singing and dancing and clapping and shouting and they had devastating sicknesses and other things in their house, and they were there worshiping God because He was God. And is that inspiring? Yes, it is. I think that God allows cultures to do things the way that they do without trying to force and bottleneck a tradition on any given generation or any given culture because He's he's totally fine with us in our culture Doing whatever we do as long as it is within the commandments and it's centered on Him and it's worshiping Him. That's what He's after is the heart. And the heart wants to keep His commandments. Because when you get a new heart from Christ, remember what the prophecy is in Ezekiel 36, I will take out the stony heart, I will put in a new heart, I will write my law on their hearts that they will keep my commandments. That is what being in Christ means. So we're free in Christ to keep his commandments and we're free to not follow the traditions of men. Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, that's a tradition. Is it necessary? Nope. Are we going to do it? Yes. Can it become idolatrous? Yes. Can Christmas lose its meaning? Can Thanksgiving just be about the turkey and the football? Yes. You better not make it that. I'm going to eat turkey and watch football. But is that going to be the point and the purpose? No. You and I as Christians have to take all that we do to the glory of God not just as lip service. If you recognize that your heart is not with Christ at all, and it's, oh, I have to, when you start feeling that, oh my gosh, then you need to go to him and say, Lord, help me. My heart is a mess. My desires are misplaced. I have probably traditions that I'm keeping, don't even know that I'm doing it. I want to end in Psalms 119. I want to ask you all to turn there with me. I feel like telling you that the sermon will be continued next Sunday because this theme doesn't stop at verse 8. It just gets started. And I thought, if there's any place in our Christian life, in America in particular, where there's confusion, it's over traditions of men and the doctrine and the commandments of God. And that's why I wanted you to, if you take anything away from today, take away that the commandments of God are what bring freedom. If you want freedom, it's in keeping His commandments. That's why I want us to end here in Psalm 119. We're going to read verse 9. This is an acrostic psalm. It takes all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And every one of these words starts with the second letter, just so you know. It's the the whole psalm. That's the way the psalmist did it. It's the longest one in the Bible. And every single verse is about the Scripture, the commandments, the law. Listen to the way the psalmist talks about this and then just wonder, ask yourself, have I ever felt this way about God's Word? Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The language of delight language of longing over the commandments of God. There is more life, liberty, and freedom in the commandments of God's word than our prideful, sinful flesh ever wants to know. But you ask God that question he asked in here where he says teach me your statutes. Teach me. Lord, teach me. This is a prayer you can pray. Teach me. Help me. I want to be like that. I want to have everybody stand up. Make sure you come back next Sunday. We're going to end here. We're going to continue this theme. It's actually very liberating to hear in the simplicity of Christ that if I will take the Scripture and just live it and do it, and where I'm falling short, ask God for help to do it, that is where real freedom is. Trying to keep a million rules is not the freedom, but following His rules is the freedom that we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your Word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. Your testimonies are always sure. And I ask, Lord, that You would show us wonderful things from Your law this week, this day. That You would eradicate the traditions of men from our lives. That You would alert us by Your Spirit through Your Word where we are guilty of it. Lord, not so we can wallow in guilt and condemnation, That is not what you do. It's so that we can live free in Christ. I pray, God, we would all long for that freedom that comes from following your word. Lord, be with us this week. Let us shine like lights. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. And all God's people said, amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.